0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome back uh, to New Books in Economic and Business History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Uh, I'm Ghassan Moazin, an assistant professor at the University of Hong Kong and one of the hosts of the channel. Uh, today, I'm very glad to welcome uh, to the podcast uh, Professor Bert Becker, who is an honorary assist- associate professor at the University of Hong Kong. And um, we'll be talking about his new book, Uh, The book is called France and Germany in the South China Sea, uh, circa 1840 to 1930, Maritime Competition and Imperial Power, and appeared uh, uh, with uh, Palgrave Macmillan in 2021, and is a wonderful study uh, that deals with the competition between imperial powers and multinational shipping and trading companies uh, in the South China Sea during the 19th uh, and early 20th centuries. So Bert, uh, welcome uh, to the New Books Network.
0: Yes, uh, thank you very much, Gassar. I'm very pleased to uh, be invited uh, to talk about uh, my book, uh, which you already mentioned. Um, and uh, yeah, forward to our talk.
1: As do I. Yeah. So um, as always, but I wonder whether you we could start by um, or you could start by telling us a bit uh, about uh, how you came to uh, the particular topic of of this book and how you came to write this book.
0: Well, yes. Um, of course, it has to do with Hong Kong and uh, with my post there. And uh, with the invitation of uh, Mr. Jepson of the company Jepsen & Co. in Hong Kong to write a biography of his uh, great-grandfather, uh, Michael Jepson. Um, this uh, luckily opened the door... To an almost forgotten, uh, forgotten company archive uh, in Denmark which was uh, before the First World War a part of Germany um, and it was never destroyed in any war so uh, the records uh, more or less survived in this little port town at the Danish Baltic coast um, The book um, on Michael Jackson, uh, which became a biography of uh, more than 800 pages, um, of course, opened a new world to me. And this was a world of um, coastal shipping <clears throat> and uh, of trading um, in East Asia. Um, so um, I became interested in uh, doing uh, more research on this topic, um, especially in the South China Sea region where the Germans had no formal empire, um, but the French and the British had. And uh, so I was interested um, why the Germans performed economically so well in this region, uh, despite the fact that they had no empire, so no colony in this region. The second um, point which interested me was, uh, uh, always struck me, was that the German and Later, also, I found out the French sources uh, were hardly used by historians, Um, but they revealed a lot of interactions uh, between business people in this region, including the Chinese, Um, and so I thought um, I may be able to contribute something uh, to the story of Chinese business history and their interactions with uh, Europeans. Yeah, so as a European historian, I means uh, specialized in European political history. I of course was interested to combine uh, the two perspectives, so uh, on between imperial history and business history, um, and to use it, in fact, um, uh, for a case study on the South China Sea. Um, uh, last but not least. <laughs> When doing a a holiday trip to Vietnam, um, I uh, worked for some days uh, in the Hanoi National Library, which I found an absolutely fascinating place um, um, because they keep more or less the um, books and other records, newspapers, for example, of the old uh, French colonial library of uh, Indochina. And so, um, abundance of books on colonial matters, and uh, they allowed to photograph them. So it was rather efficient to work there. So all these factors together, brought up the idea to to make a book uh, out of them.
1: Yeah, fascinating. And um, yeah, we'll get to all the uh, details about the different the German and French companies in um, in a bit. But um, I thought um, before we kind of start and delve into. Uh, sort of each of the chapters that deals, so I should explain each of the, or most of the, the main chapters each deals with uh, one particular port, but you sort of start off uh, by giving an overview of the South China Sea uh, as a region. And, and uh, because I think some of our listeners might not be uh, familiar with the, reason that, with, the, with the region that much. So um, I was wondering to start us off whether you could um, talk a bit about the South China Sea uh, and uh, particularly sort of what it looked like Um, by the mid-19th century, when sort of your story in the book mainly begins?
0: Well, I was fascinated by some uh, um, books and articles on the South China Sea, which mainly deal with the history of this area um, in the early modern age. Um, In the early modern age, it was already a vibrant and highly integrated maritime region, Um, which had been studied by Vietnamese scholars, by Chinese scholars, uh, French scholars especially, who since the 1990s met at conferences and tried to put together these various interactions uh, between Chinese uh, diaspora communities in Southeast Asia, between uh, Vietnamese fishermen and uh, junk operators uh, and (laughs) Then, for the 16th, 17th, 18th century, the impact of European imperialism in the South China Sea. As the Europeans were quite early there, I'm just mentioning the Portuguese who established Macau um, as a small colony um, near to later Hong Kong. Um, they were followed by the British... Uh, by the Dutch, um, by the French, and uh, later in the 19th century, also the Prussians or the Germans turned up in this region. So um, when talking about business interactions in this region, it was necessary to look back uh, into history of this area Um, And to say it was not uh, where the Europeans turned up and everything began (laughs) uh, and started, but there was a prehistory and a history of this region very much dominated by Chinese merchants, by Chinese diaspora communities, um, which until today are all um, residing in port cities Um, in uh, countries which are today uh, Vietnam, um, uh, Malaysia, uh, Singapore, these are the main uh, countries I studied, Um, and in other port cities along the coasts of the South China Sea. So we even call it a Chinese century, where the Chinese really dominated this area by shipping and, and trading.
1: Yeah, no, thank you. That's, um, I think that's, uh, that's, that's get, that gets us, gets, gets us started very uh, well. Um, so, I mean, the, the, sort of the remainder of the chapters sort of take us um, uh, uh, into four different port cities, as I had already mentioned. Um, but the first sort of port-focused chapter uh, deals with um, Hong Kong. Uh, and it deals also with um, two companies. So, so that's the French company uh, of A.R. Marty and the German, uh, Jefferson Shipping Company that you've already mentioned. So I was wondering whether you could talk to us a bit about uh, the place of Hong Kong in the South China Sea and these two particular firms and um, uh, what the operations and business of these firms were in uh, in Hong Kong.
0: Yeah, thank you. I, um, you, you mentioned Hong Kong, uh, which um, was truly an is truly a global port city. So it attracted uh, sailors, merchants, and others from all over the world. And so it was <clears throat> clear that it should be a starting point to study uh, German and French businesses. Um, the book on Michael Jepsen, which I wrote, already uh, told me about um, uh, Marty. Um, the company in Hong Kong was simply Marti, called A.R. Marti, Auguste Raphael Marti. Um, uh, the uh, partnership company you mentioned, Marty and Dabadi, existed only in French Indochina, especially um, in Haiphong, in the north uh, of French Indochina. Um, I was fascinated by the fact that the Jepson's who based their entire fleet of modern steamships in Hong Kong, so the ships hardly ever returned to Europe, but operated from Hong Kong all over Asia, um, were able to successfully compete um, with the French company uh, Marti, which also owned uh, steamships. So I asked myself, uh, why was it possible? The French had a big colony um, in Asia, Uh, as a base um, for business, Uh, the Germans did not have that. So why was it possible that the Germans, in the end, performed better than the French? Um, And so I needed to study uh, these two companies, uh, the Jepson's in detail and uh, the um, uh, Marty company in Hong Kong, <clears throat> which both operated uh, steamers and also uh, did some trading uh, inside uh, Asia.
1: Yeah, and I think the uh, I mean there's one particular term that that you kind of use to um, explain particularly um, how the Germans up- operated in Hong Kong, and that is uh, quote unquote participatory uh, colonialism, um, which I found very interesting because it kind of explains. Uh, this whole dilemma that you talked about, it's like the Germans don't really have a colony there, but they still are very powerful economically. So I wonder whether you could talk about um, what you mean by participatory uh, colonialism. Yes. Um, In fact,
0: I coined uh, this term uh, in an article um, in 2005, um, when I studied German business in Hong Kong before 1914. That's also the title of the article. Um, And I found that the Germans uh, were not only doing shipping and trading in Hong Kong, but they also invested capital in British firms. Um, And that brought about a kind of political uh, role they had. They were um, members of the boards of, of major British companies. They were members of the Chamber of Commerce of Hong Kong. And they were engaged in all kind of cultural and political activities in Hong Kong, so their standing was rather strong. And uh, when you look to 1914, when all that had to end because of the outbreak of the First World War, um, uh, there is a lot of documentation on the British side uh, on how important German business was in Hong Kong. So what? comes out of that is that the Germans, more or less, enhanced the British imperialism in Hong Kong by capital um, and also by active personal engagement in British companies and in British uh, commercial institutions. And um, so I coined uh, the term participatory colonialism uh, from that, um, which is a, um, a certain form of colonialism. and and explains to some extent why um, Hong Kong uh, developed uh, so well, (laughs) despite, of course, Anglo-German rivalry in Europe and all these political tensions. um, Hong Kong, uh, through the support of German capital, uh, became a global city. And um, I have studied that uh, into some detail um along German businesses um in Hong Kong I studied the German community in Hong Kong the German club or uh, clubs there were also clubs for others than merchants um and try to uh, drill deeper into how German merchants uh, lived and worked in Hong Kong um yeah to better understand these uh, phenomena
1: yeah and I think um, I think that comes out um, quite clearly, um, I think, uh, uh, out of the Hong Kong chapter, certainly. Um, but if we, uh, if we then kind of move uh, um, from Hong Kong, which, of course, uh, you know, as a British colony, the French and the Germans were both kind of uh, uh, not, they didn't have their home government uh, on the spot. But uh, in the next chapter, you then move to uh, Saigon, which, of course, uh, was in French, Indochina. And the, the, the particular firm that we um, kind of uh, get to know in the, in the fourth chapter is uh, Speidel & Company, a German company. And I think um, that is sort of, again, something sort of very interesting um, to see how this German company basically um, operated in French Indochina, if I remember correctly, they even took on French citizenship at some point. So I was wondering, could you tell us a bit more about Speidel & Company, like what did they do? uh in saigon and um how did it basically manage to operate in in in, in this uh, sort of uh, french territory
0: yeah this uh, was one of the most fascinating um <laughs> topics of this uh, book because there was hardly any information uh in secondary sources so everything was really uh, done uh, from uh archive material and and so on and so on um Speidel and Company um, uh, disappeared after the First World War, also from the collective memory um, in France uh, and in Germany. Um, and uh, of course, the name pops up in uh, certain handbooks uh, and other reference works, but hardly anyone knows about it. And when an American colleague asked me about this company, I said, yeah, I, I think I need to do some research on that because it's hardly known. Um, Speidel it turned up in the 1860s. They were originally from Württemberg, um, which is close to the border to France. So they did an apprenticeship, uh, two brothers did an apprenticeship in Paris. So they learned French. And then they followed more or less an offer to go to Singapore. And when arriving in Singapore, they were told uh, you should move on to Saigon. Um, this is a newly uh, acquired French colony, and uh, we need people there to, to open a business. And so uh, they came to what was called at the time Cochin, China, so the south of later French Indochina. And Saigon was, of course, a major, the major hub. So we can see that in the 1860s, after France acquired Saigon, officially it was declared a French colony in 1862, um, a number of businesses up there, and they all profited from, uh, from French government um, uh, 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 business offers. So to develop that co- that colony, the, the infrastructure, the port, and so on and so on. And, In these years, in the 1860s, there is also a kind of participatory colonialism of the Germans, not alone Speidel, but there was also Engler and Company and Behrer and Company, smaller businesses, who became members of the municipal council of Saigon. So they became politically active and they even decided on certain infrastructural projects. And the French governor at the time was extremely German friendly and allowed them all kind of uh, uh, functions um, in this municipal council. And uh, so we can really speak of a participatory colonialism of the Germans in Saigon in the 18, 1860s. Um, they also invested capital um, and they helped the French to build up uh, this new colony. And the watershed is a Franco-German war um, of 1870-71. This war, war, of course, is uh, occurring uh, in, in Europe, but the um, events, the political tensions which come out of that are clearly reflected in the microcosm of Saigon. And I have studied that uh, to some detail um, in the book. Um, and uh, we can say that after the war, the Germans... Uh, were the winners, and the French were defeated, humiliated um, by the acquisition of uh, a province called Alsace Lorraine by the Germans. Um, so, the time after the war is a time of political tensions um, in Indochina, and the Spiders and other German companies are no longer participating politically in the operation of the colony, but they still um, profit uh, from the um, economic uh, development of Indochina, and they take an active part in it um, with all the restrictions and limitations the French impose on them. You mentioned um, that they became naturalized French citizens. Yes, because Uh, um, they they wanted to do more business and uh, also import French products into Indochina. Um, And life became easier after uh, they acquired French citizenship and established in the early 20th century uh, a headquarter in Paris, uh, which served as the spider in the network uh, of the spiders in in Indochina.
1: Yeah, very interesting. But uh, but with after nineteen fourteen, the the company basically disappears in in the records. It seems.
0: Yeah, and luckily in the past months, I was able to detect new traces of this company um, in in the Berlin archives. Um, it was like putting pieces of a puzzle together. They never returned to Indochina, and uh, the the argument was that they could not be. They did not feel secure that the ex, uh, uh, expropriation, which happened in 1914, they lost all what they had, um, would not happen again. Um, and they said it's too risky to go to French Indochina. So they opened um, an Asian uh, company in uh, Bangkok. That was more or less the only thing they did. And they hoped to return to French Indochina, but as we know, 1930s, Second World War, Um, uh, this never um, materialized, Um, so they had two uh, companies in Germany, one in Berlin, interestingly enough, and one in Hamburg, Um, and of course they did import uh, and export business on a rather modest scale, so they never returned to the old greatness of the time before 1914.
1: Yeah, very interesting. I mean, I think that's for many German companies in the region is sort of a Watership um, moment. Um, so, yeah, if, if we kind of uh, <laughs> if we kind of continue our um, our trip um, uh, through the South China Sea, the, the 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 next case study you look at um, is uh, Haifeng. Uh, in what today is of course North um, uh, Vietnam but uh, at the time that was under French colonial rule as well and uh, in the chapter we meet uh, Speidel again and we also meet Marty again but as you mentioned uh, here he is uh, in a partnership with uh, Dabadi and so it's called Marti et Dabadi um, uh, and yeah so I wonder whether um, yeah you can talk a bit about um, well Marty and Dabadi, why this this uh, this, uh, this partnership came um, uh, came about and how they operated in uh, in Haiphong and um, what the competition with Speidel was uh, was like.
0: Yeah. so um, Marty and Dabadi is a pioneering firm of northern Indochina, Kong Hong Kong, as you mentioned, it, this region was called by the French Hong Kong. So it's northern Vietnam, uh, up to the French, uh, to the Chinese border of uh, Yunnan and Guangxi. Um, And uh, in fact, this was only acquired by the French in the 1880s. Um, And it meant it uh, was developed since that time um, into probably the most industrialized part of whole French Indochina. Saigon remained important, but important in Saigon was the rice producing industry while in Hong Kong you had um, uh, minerals Um, and uh, of course you had the closeness to the Chinese border the French were always not so interested in China to be honest but they were interested in China from the very beginning Um, and this meant um, this meant that and um, they always looked on the, the border regions of Indochina to China and uh, tried to get into these markets. The Chinese market was fascinating uh, for the French and they hoped to make a lot of profitable business there. So the first step to develop more or less more some Indochina um, into a possible jumping board to China was to develop the infrastructure. And uh, in a country which had almost no roads, but all transports were done on rivers, um, it was logical to develop a river shipping network. And uh, whoever been to Vietnam and have seen the Red River with all its tributaries, sees that this is a vast network of rivers which can be used for river shipping. So the pioneers were Marty, who was in Hong Kong, in fact, um, and uh, a partner, um, Jules Dabadi, who was uh, from a region in southwestern France, not so far away from where Marty was from. um, And uh, he was a young man and uh, 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 was doing business with his uncle in Haiphong. So these two came together and uh, uh, opened this partnership. And the partnership, Martin Dabadi, was only possible because they received a generous contract from the French colonial government to build up a fleet of pedal steamers, so uh, flat-going uh, steamers, um, so they could access uh, the rivers of Hong Kong and to create more or less a river shipping network um, in this region that was the beginning of this firm which was from the very beginning from the starting point completely dependent (laughs) on the money from the french colonial state. to be honest yeah they had no capital of their own so they fully depended on the subsidies um, of the french colonial government and and this Made it in the end a tragic story because it, the company lasted only as long as they received a contract for operating river shipping networks. The moment the French said river ships are good but railways are better, and the French were good in railway building in Europe, um, so they put, um, they changed more or less the infrastructural program from uh pedal steamers to railways, um, and that brought a, a direct competition between steamers and railways. Um, mm-hmm. The railway tracks were sometimes even built along the rivers, so they directly competed with the steamers. And as we know from European and other histories, the railways are more attractive, they are not dependent on, on tides yeah, and, and rocks in the river and all kind of problems. They are more flexible uh, when building the tracks uh, across a region. So in the end, this brought the river, shipp- river shipping network down uh, in the early 20th century and uh, led to the collapse and dissolution of Martier Dabadi. The other, part, you, you asked about Speide, yeah. Um, Speide more or less, um, um, started in Saigon, as I earlier said. And with the 1880s, um, they saw a new chance uh, to open up a branch in the north. Because Haiphong was a fishing village, more or less, um, and uh, it was now developed into a major colonial port closely interconnected with Hong Kong. Um, so we cannot understand Haiphong without Hong Kong. Yeah. More or less, the whole infrastructural program, the urban development of Haiphong, um, the materials were all shipped from Hong Kong, uh, more or less. And, and, and Haiphong was developed into a typical French colonial city. Um, of course, not as grandious as Hanoi, which was the center uh, of Hong Kong and later the administrative capital of French Indochina but on a smaller scale. So Haiphong is a mini Hanoi uh, in some way. Um, It has hardly ever been studied uh, by the French or by the Vietnamese, Um, but this is now beginning as far as I can see with the conference in October, that they look to the history of the Indo-Chinese ports and this includes uh, Haiphong as well. So Speidel was an important player in um, Haiphong, um, and, of course, Spider could rely on the German industry, and that meant they could bring in the knowledge, um, know-how and machines from Germany to help uh, develop the mining industry uh, of Hong Kong, which was a major factor for the economic development of this region. So they engaged in coal mining, they engaged in uh, other minerals, zinc, oil... Um, and had the First World War not occurred, they would have probably built up one of the biggest conglomerates uh, of shipping, trading, and industrial production uh, in northern uh, French Indochina. China. But 1914 brought all that uh, to an end, as we know.
1: Yeah, that, uh, as we said, that's a returning story, certainly in the book and in general, if we look at joint business uh, in the region. Um especially because you just mentioned that the French are always looking towards China. Um, and the um, the last chapter then indeed brings us uh, back to China, and it brings us to um, the French leasehold uh, of Guangzhou One, or today, where today in, in China is Zhangjiang. Um And here the uh, focus is particularly on uh, the Tonkin Shipping Company, which again uh, is uh, an affiliate of Marty, So he is, in, uh, is involved again. So... Um, and in particular, it looks also at, at uh, kind of something that you already talked about just now, now with Mathieu Dabadi in uh, Haiphong. So how the French government kind of support, supported the Tongling shipping company uh, with a subsidized um, uh, shipping route and so on. So I was wondering, uh, could you explain, discuss a bit um, um, generally about the relationship between the Tongling shipping company and the authorities in Guangzhou One, and in particular with regards to this postal uh, steamer service?
0: Yeah. Um, this was a completely unknown <clears throat> part of the um, book story. To be honest, um, there's only one French uh, PhD thesis um, on the history of Guangzhou One, uh, which is excellent. Um, um, and in fact, my interest in this topic became um, bigger um, when the uh, today's uh, Place called Sanjiang, it's a, I think, two and a half million people um, city in southern China, um, became interested in, in its own history and, and organized uh, with the local university two international conferences in 2016 2019. Yeah, to shed more light on, 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 the, on the French history uh, of this place. Um, so um, also the author of the PhD thesis I mentioned was invited um, and um, I said I cannot simply repeat what he has already studied. So I'm looking through the maritime and business part uh, of the story, especially the French shipping company, um, Marti. You mentioned the Tonkin shipping company, that was the official name of Marty's shipping company which uh, was based in Hong Kong where Marty started and in Haiphong as well. It's a bit confusing, um, but um, they more or less operated uh, the um, ocean-going steamers while Mati and Dabadi uh, operated the river shipping network. Yeah? So this may make it easier to understand. Um, again, El Mati became completely dependent Um, on uh, the French colonial government in Guangzhou 1. Guangzhou 1 was foreseen to be developed into a kind of Hong Kong, French Hong Kong, um, which it never became. It became a satellite of Hong Kong. um, But it had, of course, reasons um, how it was acquired. It was acquired mainly for political reasons, not for economic reasons. Um, and um, it was in an area which was hardly populated and uh, economically poor. So there was not much to to transport, more or less, for a shipping company, except um, for military, which the French placed there in the first years. So the token shipping company won uh, uh, the call for tenders uh, of the French colonial government and operated... Um, for many years. Um, in fact, until the end of the First World War, a um, shipping line between Haiphong um, and Guangzhou One uh, and back, which was not profitable at any moment. Um, it could survive in the first years as long as Guangzhou One was um, uh, developed into a military hub of the French in South China. But um, When the French gave gave up such plans and they gave them up during the uh, Russo-Russo-Japanese War, because they feared a Japanese invasion um, in this region and said, we can never defend uh, Guangzhou-One, it has not even a natural border, (laughs) more or less open field. Um, So we have to concentrate our military forces in, in China, in the mainland. Um, So in Haiphong and Saigon to protect our colony, um, they they pulled back all the troops from Guangzhou 1, and and that meant any any urban development and uh, administrative function more or less was uh, uh, falling uh, into oblivion, more or less, and and, and also Guangzhou 1 more or less fell into a deep sleep. So, you can imagine that the Tongan shipping company operating this shipping line um, was not profitable any longer. And Marty begged for more subsidies um, and they didn't receive them. So, in the end, it was uh, a miserable story. Another tragic story of how private businesses more or less failed um, under colonial French conditions in Asia. Um, and this was one of the most fascinating um, results of my research that highly subsidized uh, private companies more or less become less competitive Um, and because they rely too much on government money to to modernize their fleet to invest in certain modern technology to find new clients yeah (laughs) Um, and to be more consumer oriented than a company is, which is uh, operating in a free market environment. And um, Rangzhou One is a kind of failed state, and the token shipping company is a kind of failed service provider, um, reflect, uh, in fact, these uh, failures uh, of French colonial policy.
1: yeah, very interesting. Um, I wonder because, like, from my my impression from the reading was certainly that of the four ports that are covered uh, in the book, Guangzhou One is sort of a bit the uh, the, the 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 weakest link. Um, uh, it seems to me that, um, and you say it in the book that you know, of course, Hong Kong is the global metropolis, and then Saigon and Haiphong, of course, also very important. Um, but I wonder, could you say a bit about like how does Guangzhou One compare? You already talked a bit about why it was not a success, but were there any? Was it still important in terms of some sort of interconnection in the South China Sea, or was it really just a a complete failure, so to say, as a as a colonial project?
0: Yeah, I think, yeah the thing is that it became more or less famous as an opium smuggling hub um, because the only profitable business was uh, opium production in Guangzhou one. Um, And the French, of course, uh, profited from uh, taxes and licenses from these um, opium firms. Um, And um, since there was no other business uh, possible except uh, growing some peanuts and and, and agricultural products, um, they simply closed their eyes and let the Chinese, of course this was part of China, um, so, a Chinese population uh, produce opium and uh, uh, smuggled that all around China into China and outside uh, in the South China Sea. So, it was notorious. Guangzhou uh, was notorious for for opium smuggling, but it was the only profitable uh, business um, in that colony. Um, what I found. Out on the two conferences I mentioned in Sanjiang in 2016 and 19 wars, a growing interest of Chinese in, in this city um, about the French history. And uh, there are also positive aspects uh, of Guangzhou, um which the Chinese um, praise um, today. Um, so it's not just the French imperialists came and suppressed the poor Chinese people uh, today, um, they they looked to the advantages it was uh, to live in a French um, colony in China because it prevented them from all the turmoils um, of the Chinese Revolution um, of the interwar years, uh, warlords, warlordism, etc. Um, it did not help them. Um, uh, to prevent the occupation by Japan. Yeah? But for some months before um, the Japanese turned up, uh, they were relatively free while Hong Kong was already occupied. So, also teachers of the University of Hong Kong fled to Guangzhou 1 uh, <laughs> at the time. Um, and so it became a kind of a refugee hub uh, for, for a couple of months only. Um, Later, um, the, the Chinese acknowledged that uh, French Guangzhou One was in some way more developed um, in uh, urban infrastructure, uh, modern sewage system, uh, electricity than the Chinese region around Guangzhou One. So this is today uh, positively acknowledged. To uh, be honest and. Uh, um, the critical view on Guangzhou one is, in fact, more on the French side. We say it's a failed state, we were not successful there. Um, so we should not mention it, uh, while the Chinese uh, um, more or less um, acknowledge that the French um, invested money. It was, of course, uh, mostly tax money from France uh, to develop this a uh, little um, Chinese territory or French territory in, in China.
1: Yeah, very interesting um, that, uh, yeah, how the two sides see, uh, you know, have kind of different view on on the um, positives and negatives of Guangzhou One. Um, so we've covered now uh, sort of the four main ports that um, that you cover in the book. But um, in the conclusion, I think in general, sort of there are a few themes that uh, that come out rather um, prominently. And the first one I wanted to ask you about, and you've already touched upon it just now, is the of course, the, um, the sort of relationship between colonial governments, be that the British or the French, and private business. And what we... What, what, what we can learn from the case studies of both these ports and the companies you cover um, in understanding the, this relationship. So I, I wanted to ask you whether you could talk a bit about um, if you kind of take the, the case studies all together, what you think we can learn about this relationship between colonial government and government and a private business?
0: Yeah, uh, thank you. In fact, the striking differences between the British and the French colonial empires in Asia are obvious. Um, in fact, we have in Hong Kong a free market economy, um, of, supported by, 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 by British free trading and, and, and capitalism and whatever you want to cite. Um, <clears throat> so we have more or less a, 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 an ideal place for the capitalists, and the British and the Germans perform very well in this context. And the Germans, um, with their coastal shipping network in the South China Sea, um, are strong, and they employ the most modern steam technology to their ships, and they they bring in all kinds of goods and products for the Chinese markets. So we have here a, I would not say an ideal environment, but close to ideal environment for the German industry which at the same time on a global scale is developing rapidly and surpassing Britain in the early 20th century in industrial production. Um, So, um, in fact, um, uh, the Germans were very happy in Hong Kong and uh, they uh, found everything they wanted, rule of law and military protection by the British Navy and so on and so on. the the other side of this story is of course uh, French Indochina, and um, I, I I think the the French did a fantastic job in investing so much tax money um, into this Asian Asian colony, um, and but they 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 more or less restricted themselves by imposing too much uh, limitations on private businesses. Um of course they advantage French businesses. Um, um in eighteen eighteen seven the French um general tariff was applied in Indochina and that meant that French Indochina was more or less a part of France. So import exports from France and from Indochina were custom free. This, at the same time, disadvantaged all other non-French businesses. I mentioned that. That was one of the reasons why the spiders became naturalized to, yeah, as French citizens. They could, of course, profit from the French general custom tariff. Um, but in the end, um, the French colonial state gave too little incentives, in fact, to develop. Um, when you subsidize... Um, companies when you really give them certain privileges so it's not just customs, it was direct subsidies, I mentioned Martin Dabadi and the Tonkin shipping company rece- receiving direct subsidies um, but also there were other advantages uh. so um, the French colonial government charged French companies with certain imports for the navy, for the military so they profited also in other ways, but this kind of tutoring, or (laughs) um, however you call that, of course, weakens private businesses at the end. They become less competitive. And when they perform outside such an uh, enclosed uh, environment, uh, they perform rather badly. That uh, was the uh, complete opposite story of what Hong Kong uh, uh, played in this time and even place today. Um, And these contrasts um, were were quite fascinating. One point I should mention, um, which was important, was the transnational, uh, transboundary phenomena I wanted to study. Um, When I looked through the German and French documents, um, I found that Consuls on both sides were very active in reporting on each other. This had, of course, to do with um, the uh, Franco-German strained relations, Um, so they were more closely monitoring what the other side was doing. Um, But when you have consuls who are actively reporting uh, and have close contacts to private businesses in the region, they also tell you more. And what I found fascinating that you found a lot of information on these kind of interactions with Chinese merchants. And this is something I think I was able to contribute even without being a, a sinologist, so I have never learned Chinese. <clears throat> I had to rely on, on translators and others to provide me with some documents in Chinese, of course, of, only in translation. So, through the primary sources, which I found in, in, in Paris and in Berlin, um, I could detect uh, uh, patterns of cooperation and also of conflict between uh, Europeans and Chinese. So, you know best uh, how difficult it is to get into Chinese archives and to find uh, high-quality documents about Chinese business. But uh, using, um, and and you know very well from your study on on banking in in China, German banking especially, that through this lens, through these glasses, we can also better understand, uh, to some extent, of course, um, uh, tactics, strategies, behaviors of Chinese uh, business people. And this was something I thought I could contribute uh, to Chinese business history by looking to certain events and these events um, uh, um, I put into the chapter on Haiphong because often Haiphong was a starting point of uh, shipping boycotts in the South China Sea price wars were the beginning of these uh, conflicts and then you had the French consul reporting, you had the German consuls reporting and even the British consuls which were often not directly involved, Um, so we had an excellent uh, documentation, and you had even Chinese replies uh, to consuls um, which were then translated in either French, German or English, Um, and you could better understand how the Chinese were behaving, thinking, acting, and so on and so on. Um, So the shipping boycotts in the South China Sea are a typical example of transnational interactions. Um, which form an important part of the book, um, because all the actors I mentioned earlier, all these businesses, all these port cities, are involved, yeah, uh, in this story. Um, and the second big uh, topic was then uh, the illicit trade, so the trafficking of Vietnamese uh, women and children from Haiphong to uh, Hong Kong and to Guangzhou. Um, we know that these people. Um, were hijacked, uh, kidnapped um, in Haiphong and in the interior of Hong Kong um, by Chinese uh, people, and they were brought to uh, Guangzhou or to Hong Kong either to work as housemates or in Brussels, the so-called uh, flower boats. Um, and um, the question was, um, there is some research literature on that, how much uh, the ship owners, so who more or less transported them, uh, were involved in these uh, trafficking activities. Uh, And my finding was by really studying pages (laughs) of interviews the consuls did in Hong Kong with the ship owners, with the captains and the compradors, that uh, there was no direct involvement of the European shipping companies in these processes. Probably they were not careful enough to uh, observe um, and to guard the ship. Um, and there was intervention from the government in Berlin to, and even uh, sanctions imposed on the company, Jepsen especially, uh, to do a better job in guarding the ships and. Uh, but in the end they could not stop it um the during nights in a port it was always possible to bring somebody on board um and hide them and, and transport them to to hong kong so it's a uh, an interesting story tragic again uh, but interesting um because you can only understand these stories when you have studied the background uh, of the ports of the individual businesses, even of the business people, uh, to some extent, to, uh to a better understand how all that came about.
1: No, thank you. Yeah, thank you uh, um, for uh, pointing also um, to first of all the, the yeah tragic but interesting story about the um, human trafficking that was going on in these uh, ships that were of course, leased uh, out by the companies, um, but also I think um, when you said that, of course, the Chinese, you know, in terms of shipping and other than trade, of course, remain important players. And I think um, it's good that you um, highlighted that just now. Um, they, of course, remain very important in the South China Sea and important players. Um, the second sort of overarching scheme that I wanted to ask about before we close is um, generally Franco-German political relations, and um, what kind of impact these, the, the, this relations and the ups and downs uh, they had on um, the uh, operations of French and German businesses in the in the region. Yeah, yeah.
0: the the starting point to. Um, more or less combine maritime business history with imperial political history um, was, um, as I said earlier, the Franco-German War. And um, when being at a conference, uh, a colleague, uh, I I think he was an American, he asked me, um, did you ever hear hear of the offer of um, French Empress Eugénie, so the wife of Napoleon III, Um, to Bismarck, that uh, France uh, was willing to cede Saigon, so the colony, of course, watching China around it included, um, to Germany uh, instead of Alsace-Lorraine. And I said, yeah, I heard of it, but um, I don't know the details. And that was one of the... um, uh, motivating factors as well to look into the political side of the whole story of Franco-German relations in Asia. And indeed, um, which is hardly known, either in Germany or in France, was that Empress Eugénie, after the Germans uh, were encircling Paris, she fled to Britain, and she sent a, uh, uh, a messenger to Bismarck in Versailles, where the headquarter of the Prussian army was stationed, and uh, this um, Gaultier, um offered um, Saigon um, instead of uh, Alsace-Lorraine to Bismarck. And as you can imagine, uh, Bismarck was not impressed. Um, <laughs> um, I found an early report of uh, the German consul in um, Tokyo. He visited Saigon. Um, in the 1860s, and um, he sent the first report on Saigon to Bismarck. And he was absolutely negative about Saigon and said it's an unhealthy place. People die here in a couple of weeks um, of all kind of um, tropic <laughs> diseases. Um, and uh, it, so he was negative. And I think this, this is my thesis, um, impressed Bismarck. So he was not completely um, ignorant of uh, Saigon when the messengers from Empress Eugénie uh, turned up in Versailles. He knew about this place and uh, was not interested. And of course, we know of larger strategic considerations, alsace Lorraine was much more important as a bulwark of a future French aggression, uh, and so on and so on. But there was a vivid discussion in Berlin Um, in political circles, and there were strong supporters, especially from Hamburg, Bremen, from the port cities, to acquire Saigon, um, in China, so the whole south of later French Indochina, for Germany, for the German Empire. And a Hong Kong new colleague asked, imagine this would have materialized. It was a completely shifting... Shifting the balances of power in Asia, with a st- imperial Germany's colony in 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 Indochina, the British and Hong Kong would have performed probably differently than they did, um, and uh, it would have been a very different story in the South China Sea than it was uh, um, uh, with, with the French uh, in that place. Okay, so it did not materialize, and we don't want to do a contrafactual history, but it's interesting to imagine what would have happened. Um, You you mentioned the Franco-German relations. Yes, there was strained until the 1920s, we can say, and of course it it affected French business, and Speidel and Company is a shining example of um, uh, discrimination or felt discrimination the reports of Speidel, he was uh, for many years the German consul in Saigon, um, are full of political considerations. So he regularly reported to Berlin about all kind of intrigues and machinations uh, in that colony and French political influences and so on. So when you read these letters, you can really uh, see how uh, much more or less um, he felt um, yeah, uh, discriminated in that colony. And, um, uh, of course the Germans were not innocent, uh, when you think of Bismarck's policy, um, and after Bismarck's, uh, dismissal, um, under, uh, Emperor William II, it, 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 it even became worse. It worsened at the end for Bismarck. Um, he tried to keep his hands out of inner China and out of all French colonies, it was extremely sensible. And what I found interesting enough, when Speidel complained a lot, um, Bismarck often um, commented in handwritten notes, which were not easy to read, to be honest. Um, and he said, I can understand the French, they don't want to work for the Germans uh, to improve, let's say, uh, the colony or to give uh, special privileges. Um, they, they are interested in they're putting a lot of taxpayers' money into this colony and they want to profit from it. So um, he, he, he often was very much um, understanding the French behavior and, 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 and more or less said, let them do and... Uh, uh, we keep our hands out of Indochina because we want not to risk any any war in Europe. Yeah. So it was a very cautious approach um, Bismarck had to, to French um, Indochina. But of course Saigon reflected uh, these nationalistic tensions. Um, and and when the war broke out, um, there was a French mob going through the streets and and burning uh, uh, the German uh, houses and, and and more or less chasing uh, Speidel and, and his staff to to, uh, to to the port so they could uh, escape more or less. Um, yeah, we all know this is a tragic story, and both sides, of course. Uh, Um, are to blame for these nationalistic uh, expressions in that time.
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, I think we've already taken up quite a lot of your time, but um, before we end, I wanted to ask, now that the book um, is done, um, what are you working on now?
0: Yes, in fact, I have uh, collected a lot of material in previous months in archives in Berlin, including archives in Württemberg, and the next step is to, um, um, more or less, to write the story of the spiders uh, to the end, um, so to make it a mini company history. Um, and luckily, in a, in a city archive in Württemberg, I found uh, even uh, more material on them, which allows to look into the black box of this company, so to look into the, how they organize their partnerships and how they treated their staff and what kind of strategies and tactics they had in Indochina. china So, um, out of this um, individual company history, I'm planning a larger project on on the uh, on German businesses in the South China Sea and. It will not only focus on French Indochina, but will include um, Guangzhou, Um, so Canton in in China, um, which had a vivid German business community. And looking more south, uh, include Singapore um, and uh, Bangkok. These are the uh, three extra ports I'm going to study. Um, I will not focus on the French. Um, um, But, of course, use French materials um, because this would probably be too much uh, for such a book. Because I do not think we want to vertically into more ports, but also horizontally um, over a a longer time uh, period. So I want to include um, more or less imperial Germany, uh, the Weimar Republic, uh, the so-called Third Reich, um, and uh, the uh, uh, divided Germanies um, so more or less a time period of 100 years from the late 19th to the late 20th century to look um, how businesses um, acted in the South China Sea region um, uh, more or less during different uh, um, state uh, regimes uh, in Germany and of course how they interacted with politics um, in Germany and and beyond. Um, I'm also interested in looking into the hinterlands in Germany, how they were impacted by business in East Asia. So for example, Hamburg and Bremen had an active rice producing industry, especially Bremen, the Rikmas rice factories. They imported most of that from Bangkok and even merchandise goods from these regions found their place to their, their 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 places marketplaces in berlin so um this has been studied for other regions as well the impact of imports of the goods from other regions and how that affected consumer markets for example single um, of rice which became a um, an important staple in in um, consumer markets in europe So also look to these
1: counter-effects. Yeah, that that, uh, all sounds very fascinating. So we are certainly looking forward to um, learning more about that uh, in the future. But uh, I would like like to thank you so much for taking the time to uh, talk to me and to talk about your uh, wonderful book uh, today. Um, Yeah, and thank you very much uh, for being on the uh, podcast. And uh, bye-bye.
0: Thank you very much, Catherine. Thank you so much for having me.